Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On February 6, 2020, the Center hosted a conference titled Bureaucracy and Presidential Administration, where experts discussed issues of expertise and accountability in constitutional administration. As the title suggests, the conference was inspired in part by two famous studies of modern administration. James Q. Wilson's book, Bureaucracy, and Elena Kagan's article, Presidential Administration. As always, our panel's discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and the videos of the discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's opening panel, titled Bureaucracy, the Presidency, and the Origins of Federal Civil Service. The discussion begins with Joseph Postel of the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, who presents his paper titled From Merit to Expertise and Back, the Evolution of the U.S. Civil Service System. We have comments from the paper by Professor Andrew Bush of Claremont McKenna College, and Professor Brian Cook, uh, Professor Emeritus of Virginia Tech. The discussion was moderated by Melanie Marlowe, a senior fellow for the Center for Strategic uh, and international studies. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Brian Cook, Emeritus Professor at Virginia Tech, Joe Postel from uh, Colorado, University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, and my old friend Andy Bush from Claremont McKenna College. Joe's paper is From Merit to Expertise and Back, the Evolution of the U.S. Civil Service System. And he notes in the beginning of his paper that there's been a lot of attention and focus on the removal power that the president has, but there hasn't been a lot of attention given to the appointment uh, of the civil service. So this was a very instructive paper for me uh, to read. So Joe, would you like to start us off? Sure. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Melanie. Uh, thank you, Adam. And thanks to the Gray Center for the opportunity to be here. Um, uh, as Melanie mentioned, my paper tries to give a sort of broad historical sweep of the evolution of the civil service system. Um, America. And by civil service, I mean something broad, not just uh, what starts in the Pendleton Act in 1883, but really how civil service or how staffing the administration is thought of throughout American history. Um, for kind of presenting it in a brief uh, summary, like uh, on a panel like this, I thought it might be useful to refer to um, uh, what historians of political parties uh, ha have developed, a framework for uh, talking about different party systems. So if you've studied political parties, you may know uh, scholars on political parties say there are these different party systems that occur throughout American history, the Federalist era, the Jacksonian period, New Deal era, and so forth. Um, in the same vein, um, I think you could say my paper argues that there are five different civil service systems that have exi existed in American history. Um, and so what I'll do very briefly uh, is just kind of give a sense of what each civil service what each civil service system represented, uh, what its basic principle was, and what were the strengths and the, and the disadvantages of each. Um, most people think that the American civil service system essentially starts with the Pendleton Act in 1883. Most of the scholarly treatments say that's the beginning of the American civil service system. So they present a sort of binary history in which you have patronage before Pendleton, and then once Pendleton arrives, the Pendleton Act arrives, you have essentially the merit system or the civil service system we have today. I think the story is much more complex than that. Uh, and that's why I think dividing it into five periods or systems makes sense. Um, 
and I think this is important because it shows that the alternatives we face in looking at the civil service are much broader than simply, do you want a patronage system or do you want an expert uh, uh, bureaucracy? I think there are actually more alternatives than that. And this history, I think, is useful for illustrating those alternatives. Um, so the first system uh, that the paper covers is the Federalist Era system, um, which defines merit as fitness of character. This is a phrase used by President Washington to describe his primary criterion for who he thought should be appointed to the administration. Um, he looked for integrity, fitness of character, even signals like uh, sort of family connections and things like that. Um, so fitness of character was sort of the chief principle of the Federalist uh, civil service system, with one important addition, and that is that Washington emphasized the importance of geographic representation. So he wanted the civil service to actually be geographically representative of the entire country. And this was an important principle to him for establishing the legitimacy of the administration, that if it was drawn from just one part of the country, uh, it wouldn't really be taken as legitimate uh, by the people. Um, so he balanced his appointments to the administration from all sections of the country. And it wasn't just Washington. His successors followed this example. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, to Henry Knox in 1801, Quote, in our country, talents alone are not to be the determining circumstance, but a geographical equilibrium is to a certain degree expected, end of quote. So politics played a role in appointments, but a, a politics based on geographic representation. Bureaucracy or the administration should be representative of the country as a whole. Uh, the last defining feature of the Federalist civil service system was permanence in office. So we don't normally think of permanence in office as something existing prior to the Pendleton Act. But as a matter of practice, uh, it was understood that lower level officials, such as clerks, surveyors, customs collectors, and so forth, should retain their jobs even with the arrival of a new administration. So there was something like permanence in office even during the Federalist period. Um, and the advantages of this uh, system are that it gave the government stability, it gave the government experience. Uh, and it gave the government legitimacy in a period where it was not entirely uh, uh, grounded. Uh, the downside, of course, is that permanence in office led to the idea in some circles of a property right in a government job. This was actually an idea that starts to emerge at the end of the Federalist era. Um, it even extended in some cases to inheritance. So sometimes customs collectors would be succeeded by their sons as if they had handed down a property right in their job to their posterity. Uh, John Calhoun writes a letter warning James Monroe, President James Monroe, about, quote, the tendency to hereditary principle in the inferior offices of our country, end of quote. So um, this was a sort of patrician civil service system in the Federalist period. Uh, the second system that succeeds it is well known and uh, probably does not need a tremendous amount of elaboration. This is brought about by the Jacksonian Revolution uh, in the 1820s which brings about the patronage system as a pillar of democratic or Republican theory. Um, President Andrew Jackson famously announced his views on uh, civil service reform, so to speak, uh, calling rotation in office a leading principle in the Republican creed, that, that offices should be rotated frequently, uh, new blood should be brought into to <clears throat> the, to the administration, so to speak. And so instead of permanence in lower level jobs, uh, new administrations would remove officers en masse and replace them with their own loyal supporters. This is the patronage or the spoil system that we have come to know. Um, Jackson was not particularly worried about the fact that this may deprive the government of experience. Uh, as he put it, quote, the duties of all public officers are so plain and simple 
that men of intelligence may readily qualify themselves for their performance, end of quote. So uh, anyone could do the job of an administrative officer. We didn't need to worry about long tenure in office or permanence or expertise. And now we tend to dismiss the value of the spoil system, focusing on its corruption, uh, but it did carry some benefits. <coughs> the, most significant, uh, the most significant benefit was that it connected the government it connected the government to the people in a way that enhanced administrative legitimacy. Um, Leonard White, a distinguished historian of administration, writes, quote, there is value in the sense of union between common folk on the one hand and their public officers on the other, end of quote. So there's a value in having some sort of unity between the administration and the people. And patronage accomplished that union. Um, Patronage gave people of all classes a path to public service. Citizens saw a government that resembled them. And this sense of union uh, arguably is, is absent today. People don't think that the, the administration resembles them. Um, now, of course, the corruption of this second civil service system can't be overlooked as the primary downside. Uh, just to illustrate this corruption, you're all familiar with it. Uh, one wanted ad in a Washington newspaper during this period offered $100 cash and 10% of one year's salary for a position in any of the departments. Uh, so people take out wanted ads trying to get jobs, offering uh, rewards for people who got them jobs in the administration. And solicitations for office preoccupied presidents uh, and members of Congress incessantly. So politicians were doing more work getting people jobs than they were uh, on the business uh, of the country. Um, the third system, uh, civil service system, came from a reaction against the excesses of patronage, and it culminated in the Pendleton Act of 1883. Now, we normally associate the Pendleton Act with the rise of the modern civil service system, um, but its main goal was really the restoration of the Federalist con uh, conception of merit. Um, the story of the Pendleton's Act, Pendleton Act's passage is a lengthy story. It's complicated. Um, so I'll just highlight one or two points here. Um, first, the debates in Congress over the Pendleton Act are devoid of any reference to or devoid of significant references to uh, the need for expert bureaucrats. The, uh, the object that most of the reformers were aiming at in the Pendleton Act was moral restoration. They did not like the moral excesses of the patronage system. Um, for instance, and a few points sort of indicate this. Uh, for instance, Congress does not place any limits on the president's removal power in the Pendleton Act. Uh, and presumably it would have done that if it was seeking to establish some sort of expert bureaucracy in that law. Most significantly, and this is a little-known fact, the Pendleton Act uh, initially covers 11% uh, of the federal workforce, placing, it, placing only 11% of the workforce in the civil service system. However, an important provision in the bill allowed future presidents to extend the protections of the civil service by executive order. Um, the effect of this provision is easy to predict. Right. Presidents, after the Pendleton Act, put their own people in office, then extend the umbrella of civil service protection over them so that future presidents could not use those positions for patronage. Um, so the extension of civil service was not necessarily something Pendleton envisioned, but it was built into the, to the law because it incentivized future presidents to expand uh, civil service protection. So it was politics, really, more than it was theory that explains what's going on um, in the extension of the merit system after Pendleton. Okay, uh, the fourth civil service system, um, it's the progressive, in the progressive period, which I call the fourth civil service system, where you really get the emphasis on technocratic expertise. And it was 
progressive theorists and progressive presidents who really pushed the idea of neutral uh, technocratic uh, expertise. Most famously, uh, many of you are probably familiar with this in an article, famous article titled The Study of Administration, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, wrote about civil service reform in part, and he said that it was, quote, but a prelude to fuller administrative reform, end quote. That civil service was a prelude to a larger administrative reform that he envisioned in the early 20th century. Um, that fuller administrative reform that Wilson envisioned ultimately became known as the politics administration distinction, this famous distinction in public administration theory. Um, uh, Wilson probably stated this dichotomy between politics and administration most famously, saying, uh, quote, administration lies outside the proper sphere of politics. Administrative questions are not political questions, end of quote. Um, so politics and administration would be separated in this vision, and this would create the opportunity for rule by enlightened expertise. Um, and uh, you got a sort of development of neutral competence and technocratic expertise during the progressive era. Uh, the extension of the civil service system occurs rapidly during this period. And then also, of course, the creation of independent regulatory commissions, which are designed to remove these people from politics. Um, what I find interesting about this is we often conclude the history there. We often say, okay, the progressive era gives us the politics administration distinction. We get uh, expert administration, and that's where we are now. Um, I think that's not actually an accurate depiction of the history. So the, the last civil service system that I think uh, merges is what we have today. Um, and it's really a reaction that occurs almost immediately after the progressive era. By the time of the New Deal, public administration scholars and politicians have essentially rejected the politics administration distinction. And they emphasize a different principle, and that is presidential management, executive management of the bureaucracy. The most famous expression of this principle is the Brownlow uh, Committee, FDR's Committee on Administrative Management, which famously called the bureaucracy a, quote, headless fourth branch of government, end of quote. Um, that the idea during the New Deal was we needed to create tools for the presidency to manage the bureaucracy rather than insulate the bureaucracy from politics. And this is really an important revolution in the idea behind civil service reform. Um, some political reforms occurred after, uh, during the New Deal and afterwards to give the president more management tools. I think we'll hear more about this as the day goes on. Uh, so I'll just briefly allude to some of, some of them, this creation of Schedule C in the 1950s, uh, the expansion of personnel management tools in the White House, and the creation of the Senior Executive Service in the 1970s reforms all stemmed from an, a renewed emphasis on presidential management rather than the separation of politics and administration. Um, so really, I think we have a variety of different principles that have emerged at different periods of time. Fitness of character, uh, patronage as a democratic or republican principle, moral restoration in the, in the bureaucracy, presidential management expertise. Um, and I think that understanding the history of civil service more broadly in this sense uh, tells us a couple of things that I'll conclude by just briefly mentioning. Um, uh, first, it, it tells us that the history of civil service doesn't give us a simple answer to what needs to be done today. Um, there are advantages and disadvantages to all of these principles, uh, and in some ways, uh, they all need to be balanced against each other. The extremes of these principles have, in some ways, caused problems um, in different periods of American history. 
Uh, the other thing I think it indicates is that civil service reforms need to be considered from a constitutional point of view. Each of the civil service systems we've had throughout our history was based on a specific understanding of administration's role in the Constitution. And so the question of bureaucracy, civil service reform, presidential administration is really fundamentally tied to and always has been tied to um, what is the role of administration in the Constitution? And where does it fit? And that's the fundamental starting point for all of the reflections about these kinds of questions. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Joe. That was tremendous. Um, and thank you also to Adam for the invitation um, and for the nameplates, because now I can remember who, who I am. Um, uh, this is an incredibly stimulating short paper. Joe covers a considerable ground and a short compass. Um, and of course, by stimulating, I mean, there's a lot of things I want to argue with him about. Um, and for entertainment purposes, we might do that, but I'm not going to go down that road, except for two points. And then I'll raise a more general point. <clears throat> um, one is uh, I want to, and maybe we can discuss this, uh, make sure we clarify that in Hamilton's thinking about a civil service, his notion of stability in the civil service didn't involve it eventually leading to a property right in, in the office. Those were political developments that had Hamilton been alive rather than, you know, shot in a duel, uh, he might have found um, somewhat uh, disturbing and tried to resist it. Um, the other thing um, I just want to point out is a historical nuance. Um, is that it's important, and I've been arguing this for 20 years, nobody listens to me, that um, the essay, the study of administration is not the only thing that Woodrow Wilson had to say about administration. And in fact, his whole conception of what has come to be called the public administration dichotomy was a legitimating argument for the growth of a major civil service system, it was not a prescription for how you design it or conceive of it. And in fact, as he said early on, um, administration and how it functions should be rooted in deep and stable principles, by which he meant just what Joe was talking about, that is constitutional and even pre-constitutional principles um, of the state and the regime. Um, so it's, um, it's a valuable, um, if you're interested in these kinds of things, it's valuable to see more of what Wilson had to say and what Wilson did with respect to the design of an administrative system. Um, what I want to um, <clears throat> build on from Joe's paper, <clears throat> first of all, and I, want, I want to <clears throat> acknowledge the really important insight he offers in terms of the framework, this idea of civil service systems. Because I think it's a very interesting and very constructive framework. Um, I think there's a lot of nuance that we could explore within the interpretation of what those systems were. <clears throat> but what I find most fascinating is that Joe's paper raises, at least for me, 
um, the fundamental question of what constitutes merit. So um, in an exchange with everybody uh, by email before, before we met today, um, I jotted down or suggested some questions that we could pose and perhaps talk about uh, in terms of the fundamental question of what constitutes merit. So is merit a useful, even critical value for organizing a civil service and guiding its function. Um, we don't really stop and think very much about what merit means or even whether it's the right uh, concept to use uh, for organizing a civil service system, at least in the American constitutional system. If it's not, what would be the alternatives to merit as a concept to guide the design of the civil service system? I think we're going to hear more about possibilities uh, in the next panel. If it is a useful or even a critical value, again, what constitutes merit? Should it be defined simply as nonpartisanship? Um, or should it be more expansive, um, a sort of flexible vessel into which we pour a number of component values that enable a liberal democratic regime to make maximum use of administrative power while minimizing its supposed dangers. And what combination of those component values is most defensible? Um, so just to extend this a little bit, so let's take, for example, the last paragraph in Joe's paper in which he talks about the need to balance principles that are always to some extent intention. Uh, he notes that administration should be should be competent and administrators should be chosen by merit, but they also have to be responsive and accountable to the public. And I find this a fascinating way that we've framed things because we think about merit as this thing and then accountability as this other thing. But why can't merit include being accountable, understanding the need in the behavior of the individual administrator or of an administrative state, that that's part of how they demonstrate their merit. That is, you evaluate individuals, even on intake, about what they have to say about their understanding about their position in the constitutional system and how they need to be responsive and accountable, and in what forms that would take. Um, there's a great deal of uh, literature on administrative ethics, which doesn't often get discussed in discussions about what constitutes merit. But don't we want administrators to be ethical? So why wouldn't we define merit as also some form or some conception of ethics? Either the autonomous ethical agent, which is the basic model of public administration ethics, um, or some other form of it. Um, finally, um, just so you know where I stand on these things, I have an entirely different notion uh, of what constitutes merit or what should be part of defining merit. Um, and that involves thinking about what, uh, what kinds of actions or what kinds of effects 
um, administration, as well as any other political institution, has in their operation. And um, as Joe knows, because he read this, um, I divide them between instrumental functions and effects and constitutive functions and effects. And this challenge of administrators and administration is, and here's the real tension I see, is between the instrumental, that is, they are charged with carrying out the law to achieve some purpose. And they're expected to perform in certain ways and in court with certain standards to realize those purposes. But in fact, in the process of doing so, they actually shape how people behave. They shape relationships within society. They shape the relationship between clients and agencies, between recipients of aid and agencies, all of the kinds of things that those of you may be familiar with the policy feedback literature talk about. And these are formative effects. And administrators have to navigate the tension between these because for people who are the observers and also the rulers, if you will, they often see that while the administration is supposed to be doing one thing that is achieving some purpose, they're also having effects that aren't necessarily directly associated with that purpose. They are shaping the way people think about themselves as political actors. Famous um, work by Susan Mettler about the, uh, the, um, uh, the GI Bill of Rights and its effect on the political behavior of veterans. Um, so those kinds of things weren't an intention of the design of the GI Bill, but in fact, it shaped the political efficacy sense of veterans. So there's this tension that people feel, even if they're not completely conscious about it, between the constitutive and the instrumental. And it would be interesting to explore the possibility that we could find ways to develop the sensitivity of administrators that they are faced every day in everything they do with trying to navigate the tension between the instrumental and the constitutive. Anyway, to, to close, it's a, I'm raising a main, the main question I'm raising is what's merit? How could we define it or how should we define it or should we throw it out and try some other conception of the uh, standards and principles we would apply for selecting civil servants and observing their behavior and guiding them in their work uh, and agencies as well in their work. Thank you. Okay. Well, um, thank you uh, for the invitation to be here, um, Adam. and. Um, Beautiful hotel, wonderful location for this uh, this event. Uh, I wanted to start by commending Joe on his paper, which I thought was very interesting, and um, it takes what, in some ways, is kind of a, a well worn history and really takes a, a second and fresh um, fresh look at it. I appreciated that. Um, so I'm going to start by asking just a few questions about some specifics in the paper itself, uh, some of the concepts in the paper, and then. Um, I want to uh, finish, I guess, with um, uh, some greater consideration of this this theme of uh, tensions, because I think that kind of runs throughout um, both the paper and the more general conversation. <coughs> so, 
in terms of some specific questions, uh, Joe brought up the issue of geographical representation uh, as an early principle in the civil service. And um, one thing that wasn't entirely clear, and uh, I don't know if Joe has a, uh, you know, if his research can, can speak to this or not, but um, the question occurred to me whether that geographical representation was seen by the earliest presidents as a kind of fixed principle, or whether it was considered more as a sort of temporary expedient at the moment of the nation's formation to try to um, uh, help consolidate the national sense. Um, and uh, so that was, that was one thing that, uh, one question that occurred to me. Another one was uh, something that did not uh, come up in, in Joe's remarks, but uh, is in paper, and that's reference to uh, legislation three decades before the Pendleton Act, uh, supported by the Whigs, um, creating a, uh, a competitive exam system for clerks. And uh, I thought that that was particularly interesting, something I had not heard of before, um, and uh, something which would seem, I guess, uh, at least superficially, to confirm the notion that Joe is putting forward that um, the issue initially in civil service was not expertise, because that thought occurred to me, if you're, if you're after expertise, the first place you're going to institute competitive exams is not going to be clerks, probably, maybe lighthouse operators. Right or uh, maybe even uh, customs inspectors who have to know a lot, uh, you know, specific information, um, and yet uh, it, it seems to be the clerks where this uh, this went first. So um, uh, that was uh, curious to me. Um, the third uh, question uh, has to do with uh, also something in Joe's uh, paper, but this was. Uh, uh, Statement from Congressman Jenks, right, uh, a decade and a half before the Pendleton Act, uh, where he lays out in a speech um, what is basically the standard case, uh, as, as Joe put it, for uh, civil service reform. And there are three parts to it, uh, three points. One was that it would make government more efficient. One was that it would lead to a higher level of talent in government. And one was that it would give politicians more time to do important things. And uh, the, the thought occurred to me, uh, was there a fourth underlying point that maybe does not come out in public speeches all that much, but uh, which would seem to me to be likely to be on the minds of public officials, elected officials. And that is, if you're a politician, you like to be liked, right? And you, you want your ratio of people who like you to people who don't like you to be positive. If there are five people who want every job, you're going to make one person very, very happy and four people unhappy. And that's not the ratio that you're looking for. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if any notion of that comes across, you know, probably not in speeches on the floor of the House, but uh, is there any sense in here that, that the elected officials are starting to feel like this is a losing game and we kind of like to move on uh, from it. Um, as far as the tensions go, uh, there's the tension that was uh, mentioned at the end of the paper, uh, raised in the, uh, the New Deal. Uh, I, I want to come back to that, but there's one that was raised uh, much earlier uh, in the paper, uh, very briefly, and that was the kind of tension between the president and Congress, right? That the Whigs 
objected to the spoil system, partly because they saw it as a uh, means of ripping away certain um, influence over the bureaucracy from Congress and giving it to the president. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, if more couldn't have been said about the role of Congress after the end of the spoil system, you know, how do they, do they try to kind of re reinterject themselves into this process? Certainly today, if you're an agency head, um, you're very well aware of Congress, right? You don't uh, act in the absence of that because among other things, they can haul you before a committee and grill you uh, on C-SPAN for 12 hours. Uh, and so uh, Congress is not a non-entity in all of this, but what, what uh, kind of role did, did Congress fashion for itself uh, once the spoil system uh, went down. Um, second tension that uh, that Joe mentions, um, or, or at least the contrast he mentions, is between merit and the concept of neutral competence. Uh, he points out that the progressives um, did not see these as, as the same. They saw neutral competence perhaps as growing out of this question of merit in some way, but as being distinct from it. Uh, and yet today, um, in in many um, instances, we have a kind of tendency to conflate the two, right? And my, uh, I guess my my question would be here, uh, if there is a kind of tension or at least a difference between merit and neutral competence, and if it wasn't the progressives who conflated the two of them, when and where and by whom did, did they get conflated? Uh, what was that, that process and what does that tell us about civil service, if anything? Um, and then uh, we have this uh, this final um, tension that was raised uh, from Franklin Roosevelt on uh, this um, ascendant hope or uh, desire for presidential management colliding in some sense with the uh, progressive notion of expert administration, um, and I'm wondering if it's not. Uh, Maybe the way to formulate this is not so much that FDR um, wanted to push back against expert administration in favor of presidential management because he didn't like expert administration, but because he really did like expert administration, right? Uh, but rather, perhaps he wanted to promote expert administration as long as it was subject to presidential control. But uh, the, the classic statement that comes to mind is when uh, Roosevelt uh, proclaimed the day of enlightened administration has come. And uh, for a long time, I had read that as um, kind of synonym for expert administration. But in fact, clearly it, it's not, right? Uh, but I also don't think that it's, um, that expert administration is absent from that notion. So perhaps... For Roosevelt, an enlightened administration meant expert administration that was politically reliable <laughs> or something, something along those lines uh, in a broad sense. Um, and uh, I guess a uh, question that grows from that would be, um, though perhaps not, perhaps or perhaps not, Roosevelt's intention, um, do we have a third kind of model that has developed uh, in, in, the, in the meantime, um, which is to say uh, not entirely presidential management and not entirely neutral uh, expert administration, but in some sense a kind of politicized expert administration. Uh, and um, 
we don't always see this because what the president wants and, and where the expert uh, administration is going are often in sync. Um, but uh, I think there are moments when um, that's clearly not the case. I think we're sort of in one of those moments right now. And uh, that kind of exposes this rift um, and, and perhaps um, raises the question of whether we don't have a sort of politicized expert administration. Um, and I raised uh, a, a few uh, examples of this. Um, take, for example, uh, some of the resistance inside the Interior Department to uh, land management policies in the 1980s, right? Or the EPA in the 1980s, the EPA today. Um, and lest anyone think that this is purely partisan uh, sort of tendency, uh, a lot of resistance within HHS to welfare reform in uh, 1986. Um, and uh, this could be a combination of philosophical inclination, a certain amount of bureaucratic self-interest, um, but uh, there does seem to be a kind of asymmetric application of this uh, politicized um, expert administration, by which I mean, uh, I, I have not yet seen, maybe there will be, maybe, maybe there's one that I'm not aware of, but uh, we have not yet, to my knowledge, seen uh, the EPA go rogue because some of the permanent members of the bureaucracy have fears that it's instituting too much regulation that might drag the economy too much. Uh, you didn't really see resistance within HHS to uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Right. And so there does seem to be kind of asymmetric quality to this. Um, but uh, I will kind of leave that out there as a question whether there is a model of a kind of independent but not entirely neutral uh, expert administration. Great. OK. So. Sure. Yeah. And I, I will. There's a lot to respond to. And I will respond <laughs> to everything. Sure. We can have some um, of it in the discussion. Maybe just to point out that this conversation, I think, is. Um, raising a couple of interesting historical moments that I didn't really have the time to talk about that aren't even maybe as fully fleshed out in the paper as they need to be, um, that might be worth more attention. The first is the Whig, uh, the Whig party's view of administration. Um, there's a lot of interesting things to connect there, not just with civil service reform, but with the sort of Whig philosophy of government in general, right? The opposition to Jackson telling the Treasury Secretary how to use his discretion. Um, the Whigs thought that presidents shouldn't be able to direct their subordinates that way, that, that uh, executive officials should be accountable to, to the law and not to the president. Um, but then also their views on uh, sort of staffing the administration, I think, are, are sort of hard for us to grapple with, right? That they are the first to set up competitive examinations. It's not the Pendleton Act in 1883. It's actually the Whig Party that starts to set up competitive examinations for certain uh, clerks. Now, again, maybe it's the nature of the position mm -hmm. that, that enables them to do that. So something about, you know, what is the Whig theory of uh, administration? If the Whigs had, had actually won very many elections when, during the time that they were in existence, of course they didn't, but had they won a lot of elections and had the chance to define their period, what, how would it have differed from the Jacksonian patronage approach, um, I think is maybe something worth pondering. In other words, what's a legislative-centered civil service? What does that look like? What are the dynamics that, that are involved there? Um, and then the other is sort of the other historical moment that maybe needs to be thought of here is the 1912 election and the fight amongst the 
progressives themselves over what's the relationship between the president and the bureaucracy. So the Theodore Roosevelt new nationalism approach to running the, the administration versus the Woodrow Wilson new freedom approach. Because um, when uh, Andy talks about sort of politicized expert administration, presidential management combined with technocratic expertise, I get the sense that that's what the new nationalism is trying to accomplish, putting the president in charge of the bureaucracy, but also having a bureaucracy that's expert at the same time. The difficulty there is, while you can state that at the level of generality, the president manages the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy is filled with experts, how you actually operationalize that is something that's very hard to understand, um, for me at least. And so I'd be interested in thinking about what does it mean to combine the principles of presidential management on the one hand with expert administration on the other, because they seem at least at the level of theory to be in some conflict. So there's more to say, but I think those two things are jumping out for me as important things to consider. Okay, could we go back to the discussion of merit and do you have anything you would like to add on, right. on some yeah. of that? I mean, that, that's expansive. We can't probably come to a consensus on what it should be right now, but what, what would you say to Brian's remark? I think, um, the idea of fitness of character as part of merit is something we've completely, we've largely abandoned today. Um, we see fitness of character as a sort of prerequisite, but not component of merit. In other words, if you're corrupt, you shouldn't be in the administration. We don't think that good character is something we should think about when we're evaluating who to appoint to um, an administrative position. And so, so what, what would you consider a good character? That's probably why we've abandoned it, is because... <laughs> Uh, for, for Washington and for people mm -hmm. uh, during the Federalist era, it was they come from a good family. Um, it turns out that all the, you know, the administration was essentially staffed by the same families for an entire generation because those were the people we could trust. Those were the people who had good character. And there's something offensive about that, right? Uh, <clears throat> right rightfully, that you would just have a sort of patrician administration. Um, on the other hand, it seems important to have good character in administration. And so fitness of character, I think, should be an important part of it, uh, of what we define merit as. But it does raise the challenge of how you're going, how you're going to define that, how you're going to screen people for good character. Um, I think we do background checks, but that's not really <laughs> what, what Washington and the federal more exposed if you have bad, really bad character. <laughs> I mean, it, it, would, it would probably be impractical but the process by which presidential management fellows are selected is essentially a much more capacious form of evaluating merit that includes those kinds of things. And it's a very intense, um, you know, I'm not sure if there's both a written and an oral exam, but there's a kind of a case-based challenge and a whole bunch of other stuff. And maybe you couldn't do that for, um, you know, a civil service of two million people, and maybe you wouldn't need to. Um, but there's no reason why we couldn't reconceive um, what we use as the filters by which we select individuals into the civil service that would include some new version uh, of fitness of character that wasn't related to who your family was, um, but you know what you've demonstrated or can demonstrate in terms of your ethical tendencies or um, other sorts of things like that. So I agree that it was abandoned because of this reaction to the aristocratic sort of roots to it. But 
Um, but that's the whole point of doing history, which is, oh, here's something we might want to recover and fashion it for our current way of thinking about this problem, right? Um, so let's not completely ignore it as a possibility um, as we sift through, um, you know, uh, the construction of a new version um, of the civil service system. That's what we're interested in doing. Andy, do you have anything that you'd like to add before we pass it to the audience? No. Okay, I, I have one question, but I'm going to hold it until the end. Um, okay, I do so, have something to say about the wig. Oh, but... would you like to say it now? No. Okay. Uh, come on, say it now. <laughs> well, the, the wig concept of administration was that there were pools of discretion. That it wasn't a hierarchical structure. That's why they were so resistant to the Jacksonian approach, because they saw what was happening. Um, and of course, that is related to the fact that they controlled Congress much more than they controlled the presidency. Um, but a version of what might have been uh, a Whig-dominated conception of the civil service is probably what you would see if you you're familiar with David Robinson Bloom's book, uh, a Congress-centered public administration or a legislative-centered public administration. Um, I mean, Congress has constructed a pretty elaborate structure for controlling public administration and controlling the civil service in ways that um, are a, uh, not, it's not a counter to what the president, to, to presidential management. It's a supplement or a, you know, um, I don't know how to, how to characterize it, but they have lots of ways of doing it. And probably the Whigs would have had some version. At least that's my wild guess about how the Whigs would operate. All right, questions? Stuart Reuter. Talking about your geographic representation sounded like bringing people in from the far reaches to Washington. But there has been a move in the other direction, call it a reversal. Uh, the first one I know of was when the military financial people were moved out of this area and down to Tennessee. And I'm hearing that things like the Bureau of Land Management is being moved to Colorado with great weeping and gnashing of teeth among the current bureaucrats in that organization who don't want to move. Any comments uh, about that form of geographic decentralization, which I think is going on, is probably a good idea. That was part of what I was saving until later. So great. <laughs> Let's go now. So it, it, it existed during the Federalist era as well. In other words, not only were they taking people from all parts of the country to join the administration, they're also placing them around the country. So the field agents were scattered throughout the country to a much greater extent than they are today. Um, and I think that was done deliberately in order to show people that this new government was present and that it had legitimacy and that it could start forming connections with people. There's this um, well-known sort of principle in Federalist Number 17 where Hamilton says, you know, a government uh, that is close to the people, that is daily sort of present to them, is going to form the affections of the people towards it. And so um, I think the Federalists understood that if, they wanted the government to gain legitimacy, to be accepted as legitimate by the people. It needed to be there in so front of them. What federal officers would have been distributed other than postmasters? 
uh, customs collectors, of course, on the coasts, yes. um, land surveyors, um, might be forgetting other. Uh huh. Right. right. Although they weren't actual employees, they were kind of contract employees, and sometimes state attorneys were used instead. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was a very thin civil service at the time. But uh, I mean, and most of those were out. Uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was the customs service that was the most present, at least from the point of view of you know the relationship between the, the early the only source of federal income. Exactly. Well, there were there was there were un, until Jefferson there were some excise taxes and other kinds of things, right? And so the whiskey rebellion, right? <laughs> right, right. So I mean, you know, but, but and so there there were tax collectors who you know got roughed up, but um, <laughs> but there were they were present, and I mean, if you if you look at both Hamilton um, and his work, um, you know, all of the circular letters, all of the right. All of the issues, you know, the, the 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 communications with those folks. He's constantly communicating with them, making sure that they're following the rules, and but also getting feedback from them, in which they tell him, you know, you're being a little bit too strict on these rules. We you, can, you need to give us a little bit more leeway in how we apply these things, and you know, and how we make judgments about collecting customs and the, you know, and those sorts of things. So. Um, it also establishes a kind of early administrative process in terms of field and central office in terms of that exchange that also gives intelligence to Hamilton and anybody else in Washington about how the government is having an effect out in the hinterlands. Okay. Hi, uh, Aaron Johnson. So. On this question of character, I know there are certainly many um, private professional societies that have ethical components and you're required to sign and study ethics. So what's the current status you know, in, in the federal bureaucracy with respect to ethical components of training uh, certification? Is there? Is there an ethical? Is there a federal ethics code? Yes. I mean, I don't mean a law. I mean, just the code of ethical conduct. So, for example, you know, the APS, I mean, sorry, the American Society of Public Administration has a code of ethics. So if you're a member of that, you would have pledged yourself to that. But is there an independent code of ethics? Yes, there are regulations by the Office of Government Ethics Right. Right, but I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about a separate code, separate code that says these are the principles to which we dedicate ourselves. I don't, I, except for your oath of office, is there is there one? I'm not, I'm not sure there is. Involuntary society is bound by a code. Civil servants are subject to criminal penalties. I don't know if it's criminal penalties. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't proposing that they were less than. But there's a sort of a kind of an articulation of a more expansive sense of your duties that go beyond what a law or regulation might stipulate. Does that apply to 
to uh, merit employees or just to appointees? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, great. There is something in code of federal regulations called the basic obligation of public service. Ah, okay. Interesting. This uh, uh, 14 principles of uh, 14 general, general principles, such as public service and public trust, yeah. requiring employees to place loyalty and trust. Okay. I think a, an interesting follow-on question to whether these things exist, it would be how effective are they in practice? Do people yeah. follow them? Do people know about you know, do, do people know, know about them? them? Right. Have they read do they read these carefully? Because if you really want to get at the question of things of character, it's more than it's more important than just that. having these right. codes or these rules or laws, right? It's about whether it's sort of Part of the ethos of the civil service. There are requirements for annual training. In annual training in what? In, in these principles, ah. various ethical requirements, mm -hmm. the code of it, uh, regulations uh, as a federal employee, many years, annual training. Interesting. Uh, three quick questions. Since you mentioned inheritance of uh, civil service jobs in the 19th century, has there been any studies of how many civil servants in the late 20th and 21st century are the sons and daughters of civil servants? Also, you mentioned exams in the 19th century. Weren't there many exams in the 20th? And aren't there still some exams in the 21st century? And third, what's the impact of all the veterans' preferences that have been around since post-World War II? Uh -huh. Um, I'm not aware of any inheritance rights or like, uh, or de facto, right, that people are sort of passing jobs down to children or even just, the, but I would get, you know, I don't know of any specific studies about that. Okay. And, and the reason I ask this, if you go to Aberdeen Food and Grants, everyone who's 35 who's a civil servant, either their mother or their father or more than I can vote for civil servants at Aberdeen Food and Grants. The only way to get a civil service job is someone has to know enough to get you through all the application process. Right, right. So it's become the family business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next, Amy. <clears throat> um, okay. Yeah. Oh, and then okay. Nothing about exams. Meaning, do they exist today, or are they pervasive today? Or were they pervasive in the late twentieth century? I get the sense that they. They are. They were and still are today. Yeah. Richard Coleman, I spent 40 years with the Customs, Bureau of Customs, became the Customs Service, became CBP. Um, I think it's important to recognize the role of my agency in the urgency of creating the Civil Service Commission, since it was the collector of customs in New York. Where all this money's coming in, in ornate office, and right. he absconds, goes to Paris. What a what a shock! What a horror! What a scandal! And he was replaced with a, another collector of customs from New York, who did the exact same thing, and ended up in Paris as well. So I guess uh, uh, I guess there was more than a philosophical interest in 
gaining control of the bureaucracy. Uh, the do you? I've never known how to pronounce his last name. The, the first, at least, of the secession of people who stole a bunch of money from the treasury and fled to Europe. <laughs> Samuel Swartwout, 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 uh, who, uh, after, you know, who gave rise to the, the famous case of Murray's lessee, right, which uh, lawyers here may know, um, ran off with about 5% of the federal budget for one year. Uh, it, uh, it was over a million dollars, but a pretty large portion of the federal budget at the time. So the, the New York Customs Office was sort of the prize position and really this a lot of the patronage battles and the corruption really stems from just that one that one office okay andrew hi andy rodelovich um two quick questions on the geographic distribution question uh, one is sort of just a trivia question my memory is that some large percentage of federal workers do live outside the dc area now uh, 80 percent maybe is that a number that sounds right uh, yeah, so it's very, I mean, so already, you know, when we talk about dispersing government, that's done in a certain sense. Um, so I actually was asking Joe's last point about presidential management, and the use of these kinds of reorganizations and relocations as a form of that, um, we seem to be seeing that a little bit, you know, the Malek manual so-called uh, sort of talked about how to move recalcitrant civil servants out to less desirable geographic postings. Uh, but we're seeing that at least in echo for maybe with uh, shifts in different pieces of your uh, Department of Agriculture, for example, right? Some of the economic research folks are being moved out to Kansas City and so forth. Um, obviously, there are advantages to presidential management, but, you know, uh, personal resistance to that, you know, see it as legitimate uh, in terms of the treatment of a professional bureau that is now being asked to uproot itself. Right. I'm just curious as to your view of how that does fit into the last piece of your sequence. Yeah. So. Um... The so yeah, I think I'm saying today we're in this sort of civil service system of presidential management. I think that's more the case as a matter of public administration theory than it is of actual practice. We have you know, each one of these new systems gets layered on an existing system. So when you get the rise of presidential management, it doesn't just do away with the progressive notion of neutral competence, which is well established, and you know we've had decades of practice in which we've built these kinds of regulatory institutions. So. You end up getting today, I think, a sort of mixture of a lot of the different principles because we didn't just get rid of everything that existed uh, when we started down the path of presidential management. So um, I, I think, though, the question of presidential management, we sort of take as, I think, in some sense, a well-grounded constitutional rule, right, that the president should be responsible for all of the acts of, of the administration and that whatever enhances the president's ability to direct, supervise, manage, and control is a good thing. That's why I find the Whig alternative to be so interesting. Um, these were people who really deeply cared about constitutional principle, and yet they came to a very different conclusion about the president's control over the bureaucracy. Their argument was the bureaucracy is an arm of Congress, uh, which also makes sense from the point of view of constitutional theory. Its job is to carry out the will of the legislature. And so... Um, when, say, Jackson tells the Treasury Secretary to withdraw the bank deposits, um, their argument is the president can't do that because the, the administrators are tools of you know, the law, right? They're instruments of the law, not of, of the will of the president. So I think sometimes we actually may emphasize presidential management a little too much. There are extremes even in this 
civil service system that we're in now, um, which is, I think, why it might uh, be worthwhile to go back and sort of read some of the things they had to say about that. I think it's interesting, <clears throat> the question of presidential management versus responsiveness to the president. So there's a lot of informal acknowledgement that, you know, if the president wants something, you should respond to that, right? And how you do that then becomes the challenge to administrators, because it's not a matter of formal structural management. It's the president wants to do this or take the policy in this direction. How do you respond to that? Or it's even just a matter of priorities. You're working on something, right? Some you're in just to take the EPA, you're working on some uh, regulatory impact analysis, and suddenly the president wants to do something else, and you get reassigned to respond to that short-term presidential thing. And the question is, is that a good, I mean, from the point of view of the civil service, is that a good use of civil service time and energy to suddenly shift over and do something else? And how do you think about that as a question of what your responsibilities and roles are as a civil servant? Should you always just drop what you're doing and respond to a presidential, you know, initiative or something like that? Or should you commit yourself? Because it's a, it's a version of what you were just saying. You, should you commit yourself to the long-term performance of whatever the law requires and whatever regulatory actions required to fulfill the law? And that's a real, real tension that's existed now since the rise of presidential management is how far civil, you know, merit civil servants need to be, you know, sensitive and responsive to presidential, I don't want to call them edicts, but preferences, um, as opposed to continuing to do what they're, what the law requires them to do to fulfill their obligations to carry out the law. So it would be interesting, again, to, to think more about that and what other uh, analogies could be used to help, you know, flesh that out from a, but, you know, I'm interested in the theory side, but also as a practical matter. On the back row. Thank you. Uh, my name is James Ridgway. I had a question about alternatives to sort of the big five that you talked about. Uh, it seems like most of them are focused on more of a one-size-fits-all to the question of expertise versus presidential management. But then you've got folks like James Wilson, who when they look at the bureaucracy say there's four types of agencies, and it really breaks down depending on whether the inputs are objectively observable or really fuzzy and whether the outputs are observable or fuzzy. And if you have sort of, you know, in at least one typology, agencies where you can have different behavior by the folks there, it would seem that you could also have a theory that at the upper level in terms of control, you want to have different dials for that balance between expertise and political control, depending on what behavior you expect out of different typologies of agencies. Has that ever been something that has sort of attracted attention and a coherent theory of maybe we should have different dials? That's a great question. I think that's really interesting. Um, so the idea, I mean, the paper that I'm that I'm writing here is really looking at the question of staffing and what is the principle of staffing and how does the constitutional sort of system inform that. Wilson's approach is more to think, you know, uh, about what is the nature of the institution's goal, uh, or you know, 
is this something like that you measured very clearly or is it something that's ill-defined and therefore you should have different structures to conform to the various missions and the different kinds of missions that an agency might have. Um, I am completely unaware of any attempt in American history to try to merge those two uh, considerations. Um, but I think it's a really interesting suggestion for how we might think about it today. Yeah, it's a, it's a matter of trying to merge public management theory, that is management about the theory about the nature of organization with the design of a civil service system that has roots in constitutional principles. Right. There's no reason why you couldn't at least try to make it work. It'd be somewhat complicated, but we have a complicated system now, so why should it matter? Um, yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, Donald Elliott, um, I want to resist the notion, if I understood it correctly, uh, that character does not play an important role today. Um, I think uh, character plays a very important role, uh, but it's not based on on family. Um, my my knowledge about this is basically limited to uh, the general counsel's office at EPA, where I once served and have continued to deal with them for many, many years. But the final selection process is largely by existing career staff who, who look for manifestations of what they consider good character in the activities that people have previously done in their career. Uh, and so, for example, if someone has worked for an environmental group or they've worked for a state regulatory agency, these are regarded as the manifestation of a character and commitment that makes it appropriate for them to become part of the career civil service. On the other hand, if they've spent their time working for corporate law firms, and that's not necessarily disqualifying, but they certainly have some splaining to do in the interviews. <laughs> any, any comments? Hi, I'm Jeff Lovers, and um, I wanted to raise the senior executive service yeah. issue with you. Uh, I was a member of the senior executive service when I served at the administrative conference, and it was originally set up to be sort of a, an elite group of federal yeah. employees who would circulate around the government and, and, and use their expertise in different areas. But it didn't work out that way, partly because, mostly because once you're in a SES member, you don't want to move, and there's not much incentive for you to want to. So people don't really move. Um, and another point about the SES is uh, when I, I remember most presidents, of course, since Carter, Nixon and Carter, and, and on, have kind of run against Washington. But George H.W. Bush, when he came into office, I, he, had, he held a big meeting at Constitution Hall for SES members. And it was basically a pep rally saying, you know, we really uh, appreciate your service. Uh, know, uh, thank you for everything you do. It was the only time I've ever heard of anything like that. Um, and I just wanted to get your views on on the SES. Um, so my reading or my take on the SES was it was also intended to sort of give the president additional management capacity, right? They would render the bureaucracy more accountable to the president. Um, but there are a lot of other reasons, some of which you suggest that um, 
make them not as, as accountable to the president as they might seem to be in theory. Uh, right. Yeah. And also, I think there's the, just the question of the environment in which these people work. So this is, again, not so much on the civil service side, although it does implicate these questions, sort of the rise of the personal presidency in terms of management out of the West Wing rather than through the cabinet and through the political appointees and the actual departments. Um, from my sort of reading on that is presidents realize very quickly that they could be more effective in controlling the bureaucracy through their personal employees and the EOP as opposed to their cabinet secretaries. We normally think, you know, most people think that the cabinet secretaries are the ones that are carrying out the president's uh, mission and it's really um, what's going on actually much closer to the West Wing. So that's another reason I think why the SES didn't quite pan out the way people thought um, it would. Well, here's a historical counterfactual. Suppose there wasn't a Schedule C. Maybe the SES would have fulfilled the, I mean, it would have had to be designed somewhat differently than it was. Um, but I think, and those of you who know can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think there was a real resistance to the notion of a higher civil service that is this elite core that was general managers that would essentially run the administrative state. Yes. Right. Cool. And, you know, I mean, there is the Federal Executive Management Institute and things like that, but it's nothing like um, the notion of a real higher civil service. And I think there's understandable reasons why there would be resistance to it. Um, but again, maybe maybe I'm off base on that. But it just seems to me that even after the passage in 1978 that uh, the Civil Service Reform Act and created the SES, that there just wasn't the long-term commitment to making it something more than um, paying people a little more than GS, whatever it is, 18, um, to you know keep them in keep them in the civil service. Oh, is your uh, back to that question, James Q. Wilson. Yeah. First of all, maybe our panel will address this, so I want to give so I'm alert. Um, I do think it matters what kind of official you are and what kind of role you play mm -hmm. and what agency you're in. Uh, I'll just take out administrative judges. If you're in the judicial part of the administration, then you have certain different protections, I think, than you might have if you're in other parts. The, the hard question which we'll address is whether um, political independence matters as well as sort of judicial independence. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'd like to ask a, a question. Um, at the end of the paper, Joe talks about this is a paper that, you know, reformers should look back on and, and kind of get a sense of history and some things that might be useful to go, to go back and consider. So is there a particular impetus right now for reform or are there particular reforms that are making their way? And then maybe to Andy, what is the willingness or perhaps I should ask, what's the ability of Congress? to take on civil service reform? Um, I think the question of whether there's 
political movement or impetus for reform, I think may probably something that's going to continue to come up throughout the day, maybe even the next um, panel. I don't know how significant the the impetus is, but I at least know there are people thinking about it and um, who are concerned about um, that. You know, we this is a system in need of reform. Um, again, I don't know how serious the political momentum is, um, but it does seem like these civil service reform uh, seems to come up every so often. Mm-hmm. It's a you know, the joke is decades. the joke is the party systems, right? There's right. a periodicity to the realignments, and I guess my paper suggests there is a sort of periodicity to the civil service mm-hmm. reform movements that they do tend to come up every generation or so. Um, but that's the most I can say about whether there's real political momentum. Okay, Andy. Well, I would say, um, again, obviously it depends a lot what uh, what sort of mm-hmm. civil service reform we're talking about. But if one of the key questions is, um, you could say, accountability or responsiveness, uh, I think under current conditions, there's not much prospect because basically no matter who's in power, whoever the president is, the other party is not interested in greater responsiveness of the bureaucracy to the president. And um, I think unless we can get out of that kind of uh, partisan environment uh, into either an issue that doesn't have those sorts of implications or a political situation in which one side has overwhelming majorities, then um, uh, I I don't see much prospect for anything on the issues of accountability or responsiveness. I would just build on Andy's earlier point about the Pendleton Act, which is it probably happened when it did because it was a problem that Congress needed to be solved because they were now in a situation that was untenable, even though it was a slow transition, right? Only 11, 12 percent get covered initially. Um, they needed to get themselves out of a pickle. Um, and th- I would guess that a similar thing is going to happen if you're going to if you're really going to get substantial civil service reform. It's going to happen when Congress has a problem that it sees it needs to solve, and then that's part of the solution to whatever their problem is. I can't imagine what that might be, but yeah. um, otherwise, it'll just be tinkering. Yeah. Really quick question. Yeah, the question to me is all that. Um, if Congress were ever really to get the, the this way, the parts of Congress that seems most like the expert bureaucracy to me, executive branch, is the committee are the committee staffs, right? The way of so if Congress ever, for any reason, wanted to get religion on non-delegation, it might strike it that the easiest way to do that is not to eliminate or even significantly downsize the bureaucracy, but to recruit it. Uh, switch it from working for the executive and making decisions to giving advice to members of Congress, where uh, under bicameral resentment, the advice would have to be filtered through the actual member. Um, but they would still have a lot of policy making to do. Any um, I it strikes me that there's been a development in Congress that has weakened committees and therefore committee staff to the extent that that would be an obstacle in the way of what you're envisioning, right? That the recruitment of 
bureaucrats into the staff on the committees, you'd have to entice them by saying that they could actually do something. And increasingly, congressional committees are doing less and less because of the different dynamics in Congress that have developed over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, but in theory, had that development not occurred, I think there'd be a lot of wisdom in what you're suggesting. Well, I think the point he's making, too, is that if, if, if uh, I don't think that Congress is going to um, voluntarily take up the, uh, non-delegation because they have too much to gain from delegation, right? right? Uh, which is why it's happened to begin with. Um, but if the courts were to say, we're going back to non-delegation, Congress would, in, in that case, perhaps um, be pushed into something like that. Or they'd find a way around it. Yeah. That is a frequent theme of these conferences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a good note to end on. Okay, so I want to thank our panel. I especially want to thank Dr. Bush for coming out when he's just recovering from a cold. I really appreciate the effort. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs>